You're listening to the Homelessness Services Association podcast. This is an audio-only version of one of our webinars addressing the challenges of frontline and shelter work during the coronavirus crisis. If you'd like to view the video or look at the slides, please go to hsa-bc.ca. Well, good afternoon, and welcome to HSABC's webinar, Paranoia and Conspiracy Amongst Clients During COVID-19, Practical Strategies and Effective Communication. My name is Sarah Kift, and I'm your host for today. So when you use the question section, that's me who you'll be chatting to. I just want to say very briefly that it's a stressful time for so many of us, as well as those we provide services to. So thank you for taking the time to join us today, and hopefully the content we provide will help you to lead well and with courage in the midst of this crisis. We also have a quick poll. Um, we just want to find out what your role is in your organization. So being a longtime frontline worker, I know that I've been all of these things, sometimes simultaneously. And uh, here's just a way for you to... Um, let us know where you're coming from. Maybe pick the one that most applies right now, and it will help our instructor, Heather, to tailor her content as well as for us to get a sense of who's on the line today. All right. So I'll just briefly share the results of this for everyone to see. 44% frontline workers, lots of caseworkers and counselors, some managers and supervisors, and some amazing support staff. I was a cook for a long time uh, in the downtown east side, and, and it's a really vital role. And other, if you're other, just type into the question section and let me know um, who you are. Great. All right, now here's the best part. I get to introduce you to Heather. Dr. Heather Fulton is our instructor today. She is a registered psychologist and she's currently working as a supervisor of psychiatry resident psychotherapy training at Royal Columbian Hospital. She previously worked at the Burnaby Centre for Mental Health and Addiction, as well as maintaining and continues to maintain a private practice. She has been studying, researching and working in the area of concurrent disorders, particularly with vulnerably housed individuals for over 15 years. She also is a past volunteer of the Calgary Drop-In and Rehab Centre, a large facility in downtown Calgary that offers various levels of housing support, meals, essential service health services, as well as employment training. It's a really, it's a great pleasure to have you with us today, Heather. Um, we've really appreciated the webinars you've delivered so far, and I'm looking forward to you sharing again with us today. Thanks for being here. Thank you so much for having me. So for our agenda today, I was thinking we would focus um, more on just, first of all, getting us all on the same page. So when we're talking about paranoia, conspiracy theories, like what, what do I mean when I'm talking about those? Why do these things occur and how might they make sense in the current context of COVID-19 in particular? I also want to spend a little bit of time on how these uh, beliefs or how these sort of emotions can impact care during COVID-19. I won't spend a huge amount of time on this since I'm assuming if you're attending this webinar, you're kind of already convinced and you know <laughs> how it affects care. That's why you're here. So the bulk of the time is actually going to be spent on how do we help people? What are our different options, especially if we feel like paranoia, conspiracy theories? It's negatively impacting them. It's impacting their care. It's having negative consequences on their life. 
when we define paranoia and conspiracy, what we're really getting to here is beliefs and behaviors that some people think are true and justified, while other people don't. So when we really talk about these, we first must understand how do we come to believe something as true? Well, first, many thoughts and beliefs that we have about something are based on our perception of reality, like that dress is blue in color or that person is frowning. However, our perception's not always accurate. It's influenced by the environment, like uh, as well as our mental state and our previous experiences. So probably most of us are familiar with this blue dress versus gold dress uh, visual phenomenon. So whether I think that light is coming from behind the dress or in front of the dress, it actually changes the colors that I see. I might see a person looking at me like this and they have a tense face and I might assume they're mad at me going, Heather, what are you talking about? What are you saying? Or maybe I might think that they could just be in pain, right? And that's probably going to be somewhat influenced by my mental state and previous experiences, either of which may or may not be true or may have kernels of truth in each of it. So often when we hold certain beliefs based on experiences, our culture and learning, uh, we often view truth as cat a categorical thing. So something is either true or it's not true. But actually in life and reality, it's a lot more complicated. So many beliefs are actually more along a spectrum and it might not necessarily even be a spectrum of truth or falsehood, right? There are some aspects of a certain belief that are true, but often we have to fill in the details because often some details are missing. And so we fill in those details in a way that makes sense for us. Humans, they look and they find patterns for things. And so in any situation where there's some sort of uncertainty, we're missing information, we look and we try and find those patterns as well. And then often we check that understanding with others. What's important to know that, uh, to know though, is that just because a belief is uncommon doesn't mean it's untrue. So for example, many people did not believe that ulcers were related to a certain bacteria until someone clearly demonstrated it. Even the benefits of hand washing or the benefits of just taking a bath in general the idea that there was these invisible infectious agents, that was not a universal understanding or belief until fairly recently in human history. But that also doesn't mean hand washing wasn't effective in the past. But we do have to acknowledge that there are some societal influences to whether we consider a belief to be normal, rational, true or not true. And so given that, then we also have to accept that what we consider to be true or untrue changes over time, like with improved science knowledge, but also our culture as well. One thing that's also important is knowing that hypotheses and beliefs that are not totally based on fact, that's just a regular part of our society and social life in particular. So rumors, hypotheses, those are all sense-making processes. They serve to reduce our anxiety and uncertainty. They help people come to grips with unfamiliar situations. So we don't always have all the facts in all situations. So we all develop explanations to best plan our behavior. 
all humans do this. So when do certain beliefs start to veer onto the more abnormal side, right? Especially when this is sort of more of a spectrum versus that categorical true untrue. Well, some folks might be familiar with the term delusion. So a delusion is a fixed belief not based on reality and not accounted for by one's culture or cognitive ability. So, for example, we don't call children's belief in Santa a delusion. So delusions are commonly known as symptoms of psychosis, but not always. So other disorders can have delusions as well. And so for those of you who may not be familiar with psychosis, I want to just define it here because terms like psychosis, psychotic, schizophrenia and things, they're often used incorrectly in popular culture. So psychosis, it describes a variety of different symptoms that break from reality. So typically, most people think of hallucinations and delusions here. Psychosis, though, in and of itself is not a mental illness, but it's a part of many serious mental illnesses you might have heard of, like schizophrenia, schizoaffective disorder, bipolar disorder, that sort of thing. All right, let's define some more terms, since it's always important to do that and have our common language. So let's define paranoia, too. So paranoia, when I'm using it and kind of throughout this presentation, really what we're talking about here is an irrational distrust or suspicion of others. So um, a suspicion or distrust that's kind of above and beyond what we would expect for a situation or person based on their history. It can be a symptom of psychosis. With conspiracy theories, uh, how I'm going to define it is how it's defined in the literature. It's just any kind of secret plot that involves two or more people, organizations, or entities. Belief in conspiracy theories can also be a symptom of psychosis. Like, say, the FBI is tapping my phone if they're going to frame me for something. But also not. Right? So, being distrustful, suspicious of others, or beliefs in certain theories or hypotheses that might be more or less popular, that's not necessarily a mental illness or psychosis. So if we think about someone who's experienced trauma, distrust and suspicion of other people makes a whole lot of sense. We also have to acknowledge that conspiracies, government, institutional cover-ups they do happen, and we, we know about those, right? If you have experienced homelessness, vulnerable housing, you can feel really mistrustful of institutions and so-called helpers, and it would make a whole lot of sense based on your previous experiences of, say, people taking advantage of you, people promising things and letting you down, grooming related to, say, sexual trauma, that sort of thing. So I guess what I'm really saying here is just because someone might believe in something that you consider to be a conspiracy theory, or maybe they're more hypervigilant or mistrustful than you, it doesn't necessarily mean that they have a mental illness, although it might. So with mental health professionals who work in diagnosing and assessment, 
that's kind of sort of their job where they make these distinctions. Often we start looking at, okay, how does it affect someone's functioning? Does it keep them safe, not safe? That's kind of beyond the scope of this presentation, but I thought it was still really important to kind of make this distinction that this too is a bit, a bit of a spectrum. All right, so let's look at paranoia and COVID-19. Like why now? Why are we seeing more of this sort of hypervigilance, um, mistrust, conspiracy theory stuff in the past two months compared to before? Really, it's the environment matters here, right? Public health messaging has been very clear that we need to be vigilant about a danger that other people might pose to our own physical safety. And this threat can even be in those closest to us, our loved ones, our friends and family. This threat's invisible, kind of lurks in the shadows. We've got these asymptomatic carriers and people are being actively encouraged to avoid others because of this threat. I think most people would agree that four months ago, if you had spoken to a friend or family member about fear and frustration going to a grocery store because people keep coming within two meters of you, that you are canceling most or all social events with people outside of your home because of the risk of getting sick, we probably all would have said, mm, you know, maybe you're overreacting a little bit here. But I also think that most people would say that they have done some or probably all of those within the past two months as well. And this actually makes complete sense. So, of course, we're all having increased anxiety, fear and behaviors that four months ago, most of us would not have imagined and might have said are irrational or paranoid. But now would say something completely different. So, again, context is really, really important here when we're thinking about these sorts of things. At the same time, we have to acknowledge that some of the feelings we are having and the behaviors we are doing may not be totally helpful, or they might be helpful to our physical health, but they come at a cost to our mental health. So for example, social isolation in and of itself is a major stressor for people. While maybe people have a reduced anxiety and stress in the short term because they're following recommendations or maybe they have some social anxiety just already pre-existing, we know for all people, isolation is a major risk factor for worsening mental health. Again, this is true for general population, but it's really true um, and also quite can be quite risky for people with mental health conditions like schizophrenia and depression as well. Okay, so this increased anxiety, hypervigilance, and even paranoia or other mental health challenges make a whole lot of sense given our environmental context right now. But why the increase in conspiracy theories? Okay, so what we know about conspiracy theories is they often develop in times where unusual distressing events occur. In these situations, there's an information gap. People don't know why it's happening, what the right response is, who is affected, why them, not other people. And this lack of information lends itself to speculation, rumor, misinformation, like incorrectly reporting, remembering or interpreting facts, but also outright false information. So speculation or opinion being reported and repeated by other people as if it's fact. Or sometimes people who have alternative motives like profit 
uh, and wanting to profit off a possible solution when there really are no solutions or answers, that can come into play as well. Conspiracy theories in outbreaks tend to have a theme. So often it's about powerful against the powerless. So populations and victims of governments or corporations. And often that reflects how a lot of people feel, right? And we know from research that people who feel victimized and alienated from institutions like politics are more likely to believe in conspiracy theories in general. And I think this is really important to keep in mind because many of the people that we work with in our sector are often very alienated and feel very victimized by the institutions with which they also are still needing to interact. It's also important to know that conspiracy theories play a really important role. Often their explanation is easier to understand or a little bit more pleasant or palatable to a certain extent compared to the alternative. Rather than this being an unknown, unprecedented situation where we're not sure why some people are victims and others are not, that sort of chaos, risk, unknown, here's an explanation that makes more sense to you or just makes sense to you, right? Conspiracy theory believers will feel empowered. Like, I've got an inside track. I've got special knowledge. I'm no longer a victim or helpless in a situation, well, yeah, people might still feel very angry about uh, a situation if they're believing in this conspiracy theory. It's still less distressing and um, less unpleasant compared to just feeling completely hopeless, helpless, and very lost, right? And just wallowing in that uncertainty. Instead, you now have a special power of knowledge that other people don't. If we look at other recent conspiracy theories in chaos and tragic situations, we can see some of these same patterns. So one that many people will have heard of is the Sandy Hook Elementary School shooting. Rather than sort of the, the horrifying nature of this situation and how it could happen to you and your family and just how awful that would be, it's a bit more palatable to think hey, these people were actually paid actors. This was a conspiracy to take guns away or to enforce gun legislation. That's a whole lot more palatable. It's still distressing, but it's not as distressing compared to chaos, uncertainty, and sort of the unfathomable pain that we could imagine these parents and families experiencing. What's also really interesting is to start looking at the conspiracy theories and some of the challenges faced during the Ebola pandemic. And also sometimes if you look into, say, Zika or yellow fever, those ones are also really interesting as well, because you can see a whole lot of parallels to what's happening now. So some of the conspiracy theories that were happening during the Ebola outbreak um, in certain countries in Africa were that Ebola was manufactured to exterminate the population, keep the population under control. A very popular one is that Ebola was actually a bioweapon of the U.S. government or a way for big pharma to make money off of vaccines and other drugs and treatment. A popular one was also that social distancing and a lot of the measures were all actually a conspiracy to prevent people from attending polls and voting in some major elections. And an interesting one that also came out was that hospitals were actually the dangerous place. 
is that you would die if you go to hospital compared to staying safe and at home. And so that was really preventing people from accessing care because it was the hospitals are sort of the evildoers in this situation. With Zika, I didn't put it here, but there were some theories that Zika, hey, it's not related to this infection. It's actually a consequence of childhood vaccines or it's a consequence of pesticides. And those are some other ones that were coming out. This all sounds frighteningly familiar, Heather. <laughs> it is. It's, when you start looking at some of these articles, you go back to 2014, look at some media articles, especially about sort of fake news and challenging fake news about Ebola. It is shocking how similar it is. Uh, and I think there's also surprising where I think there's a lot of Western media sort of, oh, you know, these folks over in these countries, they're so uncivilized. How could they believe such things? We're, we're all human. We are all human. We have the same processes. Uh, and this is all, it's all happening again. It's sometimes frustratingly predictable. All right. So let's look at some case examples. So hopefully these will be sort of similar to the challenges that you folks are experiencing and can kind of recognize this. If not, Put it in the questions and we can discuss uh, once, but I kind of use these as sort of examples for our strategies later. So one example is Shireen. She's being asked to move to a designated hotel, but she's refusing to attend because she feels like if I go to the hotel, the government is going to conduct experiments on us or we're just going to disappear into the night kind of thing. And I'll never be heard or seen from ever again. Reggie, he's uh, refusing to interact with the outreach team because they're wearing masks. And he feels like this is a sign they're part of the government uh, fear mongering campaign. And also the masks is a way for these professionals to hide their identities so they can't be reported uh, by others. Like you can't take photos of them. They're kind of making themselves anonymous so they can do nefarious things to us. He also has an abscess on his on his arm related to injecting. And it's getting worse and worse. And so the team's quite concerned about it, but he won't let anyone examine it because he's convinced clove oil is going to heal this. He doesn't want medical intervention. Or he doesn't want any wound changes or dressing. There's also cadence. She believes that, or sorry, they believe they are responsible for COVID-19 pandemic because they watched a video on a Chinese social media site back in late February. And they're very distressed about this because they believe they caused this pandemic, specifically the one in Vancouver. And they believe others are now watching and talking about them. So they can't even leave their home because other people all know that they are the cause of this pandemic. And so they're avoiding their usual services as a result. And there's a whole lot of guilt and distress related to this. And then there's Mike. So Mike heard that COVID-19 isn't actually that serious. And it's really just another way the rich are keeping poor people down and in debt. And the police are capitalizing off of this to have an excuse to evict people from tent camps. He really is convinced it's no worse than a cold. Everyone's going to get it anyway. So he's really refusing to wash his hands in the shelter, refrain from spitting or even cover his mouth when coughing. And he gets quite angry and verbally aggressive when staff prompt him about these kinds of behaviors. And it's presenting a real challenge for staff. 
I just wanted to add, Heather, uh, all of those examples resonate with uh, the feedback that we've been getting from people. As well, we had somebody talking about a client of theirs when they were moving to a hotel who thought that they were being taken away to be uh, disappeared. And so they refused to go into that uh, hotel from an encampment for that reason. And for it was very real for them. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, again, it can seem irrational to service providers. And yet we think of the history, like we think of Picton, we think of many other sort of uh, missing, murdered uh, individuals, right? Where, um, again, someone seems friendly. I'm here to help you. I'm here to take care of you. Come with me, right? That suspicion, that paranoia makes a whole lot of sense and might have actually kept them safe and saved their lives in past situations, mm-hmm. right? Where we're in one situation, we're like, well, don't they know? Why aren't they doing this? And yet it makes a whole lot of sense compared to context, trauma, past experiences. Yeah. All right. So this gets to kind of what do we do? Uh, and so there's there's not much research on this, right? This is why I don't have a whole lot of resources or handouts for you guys in our in our reference section. What has been published is sort of a public a public health or uh, population health response, and the consensus in the literature seems to be all right. We need to have access to reliable data knowledgeable sources and that we need to share this with people. So in the Ebola epidemic, um, what they really suggested was key here was responding quickly with facts via WhatsApp, local radio stations, and that these accurate facts came from authoritative, trusted sources. It was also really important to not repeat the misinformation. So it wasn't saying, hey, this thing that's wrong, repeat it, and then provide the corrective stuff. It was just provide the corrective information. Don't start repeating the misinformation. They also found that the transparency was really important. So allowing families to see family members, like having transparent walls and entryways, evolving burial practices to keep with cultural norms while also staying medically safe was really important. I have some asterisks next to this reference because unlike uh, some of the other ones in this presentation, this isn't a sort of peer-reviewed research reference. A lot of this is actually sort of more media article stuff, interviews with people from WHO and other services of what they found helpful. All right, so consensus most people say is provide information, authoritative, trusted, and accurate. But... The problem is, is behavior change, it's not just about providing information. Just because someone has information doesn't mean their behavior changes, right? We're all familiar with this in terms of, say, quitting smoking or other behavior changes, right? Just because someone has the information doesn't mean they act any differently. When we look at conspiracy theories, especially about infectious disease, There's some really interesting research, and it suggests that debunking, so providing corrective information, can actually backfire. So one thing they found that happened with both Zika and yellow fever in Brazil is it increased skepticism of all disease-related information, even the factual stuff. So, yes, they maybe didn't believe that incorrect conspiracy theory stuff anymore, but they were kind of skeptical of the stuff that was provided by public health, right? So 
it's not that they believed public health information now, it's they were just skeptical of everything. The other thing that they found is while providing information might correct those misperceptions or misunderstanding, it didn't always translate to a behavior change. So just because it was corrected, hey, Zika is not related to childhood vaccines, doesn't mean childhood vaccine behavior and getting your child vaccinated is actually going to change either. So information alone is usually not sufficient to actually change behavior. So then that still goes to, well, what do we do, right? And ultimately, in terms of public, public health and population health, that's not my expertise, right? My area uh, that I'm more familiar with is sort of the individual behavior change, a one-on-one or one-to-groups, what do we know works? How can we help? And so those are the options that I am presenting with you guys today. There's a lot uh, because what's going to work or is more likely to work is going to depend on that situation as well as the person you're working with. We're going to go over all of them in detail. As we're talking about them, though, you might have even better ideas of how, oh, actually, this could apply even better if we kind of modify it or if we combine these different strategies. Those are all really great. And feel free to share them when we get to kind of the question portion as well. All right, so let's look at the first one. First option is doing nothing. Right? <laughs> <laughs> and that's, that is really deciding, do I need to even act here, right? Often people have beliefs, values that we don't agree with, or they behave in ways where we would not make those same choices. It doesn't necessarily mean they're wrong, and it doesn't necessarily mean we have to do anything. Sometimes it can really be helpful to just be like, okay, what is my rule? What's the client's rule or goal? What really needs to be done here? And it can also be helpful, especially when the situation's kind of tense, is to take a pause before reacting. So respond rather than react, right? And then you can kind of, if you take a moment to just be, wait a second, let me think this through. This, this seems like an important moment here. Let me think it through. You can ask yourself some questions and choosing what response might be better. Like, uh, how's this going to affect me, the client, anyone observing this interaction or sort of our site culture, our relationships, both with me, but also people who are maybe observing this reaction as well. The other thing that's important to remember about doing nothing is that doesn't have to be the final solution, right? It can be temporary, right? And it can be temporary of just, I'm going to do nothing for the next five minutes right now because, oh man, I am so frustrated with what someone said and I felt so insulted by that someone could think that of me where I'm kind of out here putting my life on the line trying to help someone. This is kind of what I got the heck. I'm too worked up now to be effective. Maybe I'll talk in five minutes. It doesn't have to be right now. The other thing is it can be, all right, maybe right now I do nothing, but say I could do X if Y happens. If this person does Y or people are affected in this way, all right, then I will do that, right? So do nothing doesn't have to be a final solution. It can sometimes just be a temporary holding pattern too. 
The other thing that's also really helpful is asking other people for help. So maybe you do nothing, uh, but other people are doing something or we can brainstorm together as a team like, okay, I can't talk to Shireen, right? But Sherry, Sherry's known her for sort of on and off the past couple of years. She's got a great rapport with her. Sharing information, talking to her about different options, it's going to go a lot better if Sherry talks to Shireen versus if I talk to Shireen. Another way to kind of broach your teammates is just like, I'm really, really worked up right now, right? Could you help me about, you know, this situation with Mike? It might be better coming from you because, you know, Mike and I have a history of whatever, or, you know, I already told him no about this and can just have a different voice for consistency, that kind of thing. Heather, I just wanted to mention um, another example, which is very interesting and sort of put it out there. Uh, Someone's mentioning that the tenants in their building don't have access anymore to community centers, libraries and coffee shops where they get their information. And all they see is the signs posted in the building, which is their home. And they just see them as the authority or the man trying to take away their hard-won independence. I thought, yeah, that really resonates. That's a, I've seen that before too. Yeah, yeah. And I know, I don't have this in the slides, but I know in other situations, sometimes people have recruited champions, right? And so who are sort of the trusted, um, kind of more authoritative people in this community, right? Could they be recruited to share information, right? And you have to do it delicately, right? Because often people who are trusted information sources, they don't want to be seen as I sold out to the man either, but can they also be, um, they're already information hubs or authority figures. Hey, could they be helpful, right? If you kind of get through to them and share information with them, they understand it. They're like, yeah, I get this. They might be really good to share that information with others. And we see this with, say, safe injection kits or how to use naloxone. There's some key champions there in communities that are really important. It can be the same with health information. Mm-hmm. That's really good. Thank you. All right. So another option there. So do nothing. Then there's also reflect and validate. So most people are unwilling to listen until they first have felt heard. Right. So a quote I used in the past presentation of uh, people don't care what you know until they know that you care. It's one of my favorite quotes. Um, This is also particularly important for people with uh, psychotic type beliefs, because what we know from research there is reasoning arguing about whether that belief is true or not true further entrenches that belief as well as negatively affects your rapport. So you're going to be less likely to get any leeway on anything if your relationship is damaged. So what do you do though, right? All right. So what you want to do is you want to reflect the content of what you heard and clarify what they're saying, right? Like, okay, so Reggie, I hear you're angry because you really feel this service isn't personal now. You don't even know who you're working with. You kind of feel like you're just a number, right? So kind of, am I getting, this is the problem that Reggie is telling me and sharing it back to him to make sure I've got it right. The other thing that's really, really helpful, especially with sort of more psychosis type kinds of beliefs is reflecting and validating the emotion. So um, that's that sounds really scary for you. Or I completely understand how 
you know, believing that would mean you don't want to go to the hotel or why you're avoiding services and going out, right? What's clear here is we do not agree with the belief. I'm not saying, yes, people are talking about you and how you created this pandemic or yes, um, you know, it could be unsafe potentially in this hotel, right? I'm not agreeing with that belief. I'm agreeing with the emotion and the effects that it's having on them and on their life, right? Of like, wow, Cadence, I can really understand how that was so hard to share with me. I hear how much pain this is causing you and how it's impacting you. You really want to go to these services, but you're so scared of being judged and blamed for this situation. I haven't agreed with that potential delusion, but I have said, I hear where you're coming from. Mm -hmm. The other thing that's very similar, but a little bit different is giving affirmations of personal values and then asking someone for their ideas on how to meet their needs. So usually the very next question when I say something like this is, well, what do you mean by values? I don't even know what my values are, right? Okay, values is just what is important to someone. So the common ones that most people you're going to hear when talking to them are things like autonomy, right? I make the decisions for myself. I have choice here. Their friends or family, freedom, and that might be freedom for fear. I don't want to live my life in fear. Freedom from others, like it's kind of related to autonomy and making my own choices, but freedom from judgment is a really big one. Operating according to morals, religion, spirituality is often very important. Someone's health, whether that's physical, mental, all kinds, can kind of really fill in there. Health is often important, and the physical health stuff comes up a lot related to COVID. And then also safety. And this is both physical and emotional safety. And by emotional safety, I mean here, like, being accepted. And so how do you make an affirmation? Well, we've spent, like, 20 minutes on this, which is very briefly, is really saying, hey, you really value autonomy or you really value freedom and making your own choices. Or, man, I'm hearing friends and family connecting with others. That's really important to you. And so then the next piece, all right, those are the affirmations. Then you want to evoke from them their ideas on how to meet those needs. And this is where you're still very clear and consistent with the limits of your service or, say, the rules that are in your service. And yet you kind of get their ideas of how can we bridge this gap, right? Unfortunately, the policy is why, as in all, all people who work with you are going to be wearing a mask. You know, I hear how important it is to you to kind of know who you're working with, right, and have a name and a face kind of thing. What are your thoughts about what we should do next, given there's really nothing I can do about this mask policy? One thing that's really important here is being clear, transparent with those limits, as well as the explanations for the reasons for those limits, right? So if you had certain rules or expectations for behavior, and it kind of changes each day, or uh, one staff is saying, oh, we have this rule excuse me, because of X and another staff saying, oh, we have this rule because of Y, that fosters a whole lot of suspicion, right? Well, which one is it? Why do you have this rule? And why does it keep changing? And I mean, there is some leeway here, right? Is the situation keeps changing, knowledge changes, right? But as much as possible to be consistent between staff 
over time, having the same explanations, that's going to be really important for trust. And it's a whole lot harder to build trust once people have noticed inconsistencies compared to upfront. All right, the next one is providing information. And we went over this in a previous webinar. So it might be a fresher for some of you, or it might be new if you weren't in the previous webinars. And first, I want to recognize that as uh, helpers and sort of care providers, this is the one where we usually are most have our comfort. This is the one where we tend to maybe over rely on it, uh, but it's not actually the most effective one for behavior change. So you definitely don't want this one to become your main or only form of intervention. What we really want to be clear here, first of all, is making sure, is this a good match for what the client needs are, right? As in, do they actually need information? Is it relevant to the problem or the disagreement that we're having, right? So that's why it's really helpful to mirror back your understanding, to do a reflection first. Really make sure I get it, but also they know that I get it, right? Uh, so, yeah, does this person really lack knowledge? Is it that they truly don't know how to wash hands effectively or they don't know why masks are important? Or is there actually there's some other barriers for why they're not hand washing? There's other barriers for why they don't like masks. So this is also really important to figure out before you launch in to a providing information intervention. The most effective way if you're going to provide information is using this ask, tell, ask method. And so the first one is asking. Um, so you can either ask what they know or want to know, or you just ask permission. So like, what do you know about COVID-19 infections? Or would it be helpful for me to explain why we're wearing masks? Another permission ask would be, hey, could we take three minutes to talk about new policies at our shelter today? Not everyone knows about them or why we're doing them. Next step would be tell. So you tell that information respectfully, clearly, and in small amounts. And I really want to emphasize small amounts, right? <laughs> Especially if someone, if they are experiencing a lot of mental health symptoms, um, they're distressed, stressed out, they're hungry, you know, no, no, no one's attention is good in that. But especially if they're having a lot of mental health symptoms, people are not able to attend to that information for a long period of time. So kind of two or three chunks of information there. And then the last step here is the second ask. This is the one we almost always forget to do or tend to skip over. And so it's really, what are your reactions? What are your thoughts about what I just shared with you? Or if you're sharing, say, like a procedure, how to do something, then a teach back method to make sure there's understanding. And so with this one, the burden is always on, I want to make sure I explained it right. It's not the sort of paternalistic of repeat it back to me. I want to make sure you understand, right? It's, hey, I want to see, did I do a good job of this? Could you share back to me? So let's maybe go, go we'll go through some examples. But one thing I want to be really clear here is, Providing information, even if it's about conspiracy theories or behaviors or that kind of thing, you're not arguing, convincing or persuading someone, right? Because that's not going to be effective, right? Uh, and especially it's not effective for people where it's a more psychosis type of belief. 
The other thing is I don't expect anyone who's on this webinar would say, oh, shaming is going to work to change behavior. But sometimes how we talk to other people about things can be shaming. So if I'm complaining to, say, a colleague, um, even though I don't think people are listening or people can't hear, often they can, where if I'm saying, oh, people are so stupid, can you believe who would ever think this? It gives a whole sort of certain message where people aren't going to trust you quite as much. So you have to sometimes be careful a little bit about that or just the shaming can kind of come in tones of judgment or sort of sarcasm. So we have to be careful of how we say things and how we share information apart from just what is the content of what we're saying. So examples for an ask to ask in COVID-19 for your service might be like, would it be helpful for me to share with you why we wear these masks? Can I share with you some information about what we know works to help prevent infection? Can I have five minutes to talk to you about some new procedures here at the shelter? You'd share your two or three points and then don't forget to check back in because this is so easy to do. What are your reactions to this? Any thoughts? Hey, can you share back to me about how to do this new laundry procedure just so I make sure that I explained it right? So and that's good. That intervention. I love. I love. I that really too. like it. <laughs> and it really, really works. And especially, it saves you so much time when you ask at the beginning and you get a no. Right. It really <laughs> is helpful. Um, and it's hard because sometimes it's like my cannon's loaded. Like I'm ready to share this info, and they say no. That's actually not it. It's hard to sometimes still to not follow through with the information that you think is so brilliant or helpful. But when you do actually step back, is you really get into, oh, what this is what actually matters. Oh, it's not about the masks. It's about this other thing, right? And you can get to the actual, this is the real problem or the challenge with the behavior. Here's the barrier. Okay, agree to disagree and focusing on shared goals. This is very similar but slightly different to the app, to the affirmation one. So even though we know we don't want to get into an argument and kind of convincing back and forth, sometimes we just find ourselves there with clients, right? Especially when it's something that is so loaded, uh, like conspiracy theories and whether perhaps you are part of a conspiracy theory, right? And at certain times, sometimes you just have to you know, we got to agree to disagree and then focus. What are we here for? Right. So this could kind of look like, you know, I really hear you, you know, um, uh, Reggie, I really hear or Mike could be either. Really. I hear that you feel this is a government conspiracy and these are really unnecessary measures. I got to be honest with you is I disagree. And it doesn't really seem like there's anything I could ever say to you to probably convince you otherwise. And yet I kind of feel the same thing that I don't think you're really going to convince me either. So I'm not sure we're being helpful to each other if we keep talking about this. Mm. What if we focus on what you said was a major goal for you two weeks ago, getting that long-term housing placement or getting more control over your substance use, that sort of thing. So typically it's more here where um, maybe you're having to set a limit and there's a clear choice where you're not it's not really like the client can kind of brainstorm ideas of what they want to go forward, but it's more like you you wear a mask or you don't go into the service or you do this or you can't come in. Like those, sometimes we have those really hard choices. It's a very clear limit, right? It's sometimes just of here's the choice. 
here's the option. What do you want to do? And trying to connect it to a client's goals, like will this get you closer or farther from your goal can be really helpful. So another way to possibly say this is things like, so it sounds like you've really made up your mind about this. You're really sure. Well, here we've got two options at our service. You know, you can do this or you can do Y. What would you like to do? Like, I know you may not like either of these choices. I totally hear that. And yet this is the choice we're stuck with. What are your thoughts? You're trying to give them as much autonomy, uh, power and control as possible within the situation, yet still staying consistent with your limits. And then our last strategy is one that kind of goes without saying, but I think because with conspiracy theories, paranoia is just so tied to mental health that we really do have to say it, is about involving ACT teams, outreach, other emergency services. And this is particularly important for people with that we know have sort of these psychotic symptoms or they seem to be decompensating. Because often frontline workers, people at shelters, at the food services, those kinds of things, you might know these folks a whole lot better than that ACT team, than uh, that other person who's working with them that maybe only sees them once a month. You may be the person who really sees that change in behavior compared to usual, like, hey, Cadence is really a bit more disorganized or a bit more tangential. Her speech is a bit different compared to how she usually is. You know, uh, Reggie also told me he's he's decided to stop taking any medications and go totally natural during this uh, pandemic because he's worried about his health. He's skipping appointments. You might be the very first people to hear about this. And the earlier we can intervene uh, when someone is decompensating and their mental health is getting worse, the better outcome. So this is also really important of having and facilitating that communication as much as possible. Heather, can you just uh, describe just decompensating in, in uh, layman's terms? <laughs> sure. <laughs> so decompensating is just someone's mental health it looks like it's worsening, mm. right? So someone um, that has, like they're starting to isolate a little bit more or, um, you know, they're kind of their they're usual friendly self, but kind of when I talk to them, I'm just getting a little bit more of their beliefs are kind of just, you get that flavor of just, it's a bit more bizarre uh, where I just remember say someone I knew talking to them on the, on the bus where, you know, we always get along kind of really well, where then they start talking about like, you know, I've talked to these celebrities on Instagram and I now have 3000 followers and blah, 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 where that could all be true. But it also could be a bit of a red flag. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and just sort of in the context of some other behaviors of like, this just seems a bit unusual for them. They're just not quite their usual self. Um, their speech is a little bit different. Some of the sort of just just things just seem off. They're not their usual self. And yeah. so that's when it's kind of like, hmm, I wonder about this. Maybe I should I should if I have access and I already know who else is involved in their care, just kind of mention it to them. I've kind of I know another one is sometimes someone I was working with where I was like, wow, they're really sleepy. Like they've all, I know they have trouble with sleep, but like now in groups, they're actually falling asleep and they never used to fall asleep before. Mm -hmm. I don't know why this could be happening. Maybe it's some worsening insomnia, 
Maybe it's related to substance use. Maybe it's related to changing their medication. I don't know, but this isn't them, right? There's been some kind of change in baseline. I'm just a little bit worried. Maybe, and I'm not sure if other people have noticed this. Could I share it? Would it be helpful? Yeah, it is kind of what you talked about earlier is that what's, is it affecting now their functioning and their ability to thrive in their life? And when we're applying that frame to homelessness services, people aren't thriving for the most part. Mm -hmm. Um, but I can actually think of an example, uh, when I worked in the downtown east side and I had a client who I saw every day, um, just casually interacting. And he, he was constantly, um, thinking about how Oprah was talking to him through the TV. Um, and that was fine. Like I knew that he was managing okay because that was his baseline of paranoia, but I knew that things had gone sideways when he started, um, including me in his paranoid thoughts. So he started saying, you and Oprah are watching me. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it was a reminder to me, like for us, I really like the point you brought out about how as frontline workers and caseworkers, and we are often the first people to notice because we do know people like that's one of our great superpowers is our relationships and the fact that we're paying attention. Um, and we're often the first point of contact for people to access services. And so leaning into that superpower and really thinking about the whole picture of someone. Okay. So in that case, you know, I, I'd been interacting with this person for almost a year and it was a tip off to me to to uh, call in an ACT team and just kind of get a bit more support for them because it went from an everyday normal Joe paranoia thing that I knew he was, you know, doing relatively okay to, okay, this has escalated, his mental health is deteriorating and he needs a little bit more support here. Yeah. Because, because yeah. what happened his was... beliefs are changing, they're expanding, that kind of thing. Yeah, so basically he relied on our service as a safe place to be, to access the telephone and to get food. And once he started bringing me into his paranoia, he was unable to access those services because I was now part of something to be afraid of. And so it shifted oh, yeah. his ability to actually access what he needed to be okay. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, that's a very good example. Mm -hmm. I was wondering if we wanted to pause here for questions or I can also kind of go to sort of my last kind of five minutes and sort of summary and we could pause for questions there. What would you think might be most helpful? It seems like people are still uh, digesting and thinking. So why don't we do that and then we can come back to this. Okay. All right. So people think of think of your questions uh, right now as I kind of summarize. Um, one of the last points I really want to make is that the conspiracy theories, uh, sort of some symptoms of paranoia or hypervigilance related to COVID-19 can be really frustrating for frontline workers, especially when uh, some of the theories might involve you. Right. Uh, you're part of this cover up. You're the man. You're um, just here for the money. You're you know, you're part of this. Right. It can feel really invalidating and kind of insulting of sort of how could someone think about this, especially when you're kind of doing your best going over and above. So frustrating or so confusing where it's like, wait, what changed? We were fine. Now we're not. And it's also just emotionally exhausting, right? So I think it's also really important to kind of just recognize the toll that this can take on you as well. And it can be really helpful sometimes because 
when we're confronted with these beliefs or sort of this distress, it can feel like, okay, I've got to correct it, right? I've got to fix it. I've got to make them feel safe or make them know that this is going to be a safe thing or this is going to be okay. And I think it's really important to recognize you don't really have, you have to do everything, nor can you, right? You can be that just steady anchor that's available when they need it, right? And it's scary because sometimes you can see the danger of sometimes choices or behaviors and you're acutely aware of the risk and you might not make those same choices yourself. Yet, we have to also acknowledge that many times those are their choices to make, right? And you can actually be far more efficient by being steady, consistent, transparent source of support. You know, I can do this, but I can't do this. I can help like this, but, but only like this, right? Mm. And thinking that we can kind of do 110% or even just 100% all the time, it's not sustainable. It's not sustainable for motor engines and it's definitely not sustainable for humans either, right? It also can be really scary to sometimes acknowledge your lack of control and influence with people. And yet it's also can be quite freeing for both them and you, right? Which is not to say... Um, you know, that you don't have influence or that you're not important um, because you are. You definitely matter. Yeah, you also kind of have clear limits and boundaries. So let people know those. Be transparent, consistent, reliable. And that alone can go a long way to reducing uncertainty and chaos in the relationships because there's a whole bunch of uncertainty and chaos right now just in our lives, Right. So sometimes it's it's kind of cliche, so I hate that, but it's also true, so I'm going to say it, um, is you really do need to put your own oxygen mask on before helping others, right? Is we emotionally have to be okay to better able help people. And how many times have we said to ourselves, like, I'm fine, it's okay, and then, you know, you're talking to someone, you can just hear that tone in your voice, that tiny bit of judgment or sarcasm comes in, or you're just a little bit too quick or impatient with someone, just not our kind, compassionate, supportive selves when we're feeling insulted, feeling exasperated, frustrated, sometimes hopeless about a situation of just why won't this person just do this or why can't they see this, right? Mm-hmm. And so for that reason you might not have a work-life balance. I kind of hate that term because like, what does that mean, right? Is it 50-50? What is that balance? But I would say it's very important for you to do something, for all of us to do something that refreshes us, that fills our, our cup back up. It gives us perspective that our job and COVID-19, they matter. They're super important yet they're also not the only thing that is happening or that matters in this world. Typically, those kinds of things are going to be things that give you a sense of mastery or achievement or pleasure in your life. These are going to be different for everyone, right? So for some people, you know, laundry and organizing, that makes them feel good, like they're in control again. For others, that's what depletes me. <laughs> That's what exhausts me. That is not fun for me, right? For other people, be gardening and painting. But for others, that's an exercise in perfectionism and frustration, right? 
So it can be really helpful sometimes thinking just about what are your values, things you did in the past, maybe even things you're avoiding, because getting those scratched off your list, even though the avoided activities may not be fun, man, they really feel great once they're no longer looming over you. So kind of that self-care stuff, it can feel really hokey. And yet it's really important, especially when you're kind of dealing day in, day out with exasperating situations or sometimes interpersonal situations where you can feel really frustrated and insulted uh, and kind of helpless to sometimes change behavior or change attitudes. I just want to mention, Heather, um, scrolling Facebook and Twitter uh, and reading the comments is not an exercise in self-care. <laughs> no, no. I'll finish well, my work, my frontline work or, or, you know, dealing with these subjects and talking to and hearing from people. And, and then I'll sit down uh, or the kids will be in bed and I'll just start looking at Facebook. And then I just get more ramped up because there are lots of opinions out there and there are lots of things where I'm just like, are you effing kidding me right now? And then I'm like, I'm going to read the comments. I'm going to read this article. And it's like, no, that's like, this has been really helpful for me, even thinking about how to uh, respond when people say things that are frustrating or feel like you're outside of your control, especially when it relates to COVID. So thank you. Yeah, well, I find the comments and things like that, it's hard because there's that magnetic draw, right? Because that anger, anger is a very empowering feeling often. And also we get a sense of superiority of like, how can this idiot believe that? They're so dumb, right? Yeah. Like, this is so stupid. And yet it also feeds into like our moral distress uh, and frustration and like, oh, why even bother? We're totally helpless, right? Mm. So it's kind of there's this push pull where I think often we have the expectancy of, oh, this, you know, this will be fun or this is pleasurable. And it might not even be explicit. Like I'm actually thinking the comment section is going to be fun. So you're curious <laughs> and you read it. <laughs> and yet, how does it actually affect you? Right. And there's some actually some really good research. And I know this is really a bit personal here, but it's great research on, say, surfing the Internet, surfing Facebook. Right. We anticipate that that's actually going to be a fun and pleasurable activity because that's why we do it, right? I want to catch up with my friends, see what's going on. Yet there's quite a few studies that actually look at people like during those activities and afterwards, was that actually fun, right? Did you actually have pleasure, achievement, any of those different things? And usually it's not. Like it's kind of you get this sense of I'm searching for something, but you never get the satisfaction. It's kind mm -hmm. of this endless loop of posts and searching and you never get that satisfaction compared to, say, completing an activity like reading a book or reading a magazine article. It actually is a bit different. Mm -hmm. So sometimes even with our self-care activities and what I think is helpful for my self-care of being like, well, wait a second, let me let me look at that. Is that actually fun for me. I know it's a habit I do, but is that giving me mastery, pleasure, achievement in my life? Mm. Maybe yes, maybe no. Maybe sometimes yes, and sometimes no. Yeah, that's good. So here, I'll go into the summary of what I hope people are getting their take-homes today. Or, um, maybe it'll be something different, but this is kind of what I thought were sort of the main take-home messages. Uh, of this talk today is just that conspiracy theories, paranoia, they increase in times of uncertainty, and especially when there's a lack of information.
conspiracy theories and belief in these often make people feel empowered and less vulnerable in these uncertain, chaotic, risky times. And just because someone believes in a conspiracy theory doesn't necessarily mean that they have a mental illness, but we do have to acknowledge that there is an association with some mental illnesses. And also it's important to know that stress and isolation, especially social isolation, exacerbate mental health challenges for everybody. Whether someone has a pre-existing mental health condition or not, this time is stressful and likely to exacerbate those mental health difficulties for everybody. Providing timely, accurate information can be really helpful, but also can backfire. And usually information alone is not going to be sufficient to change behavior. Instead, we have several different options for action, but those and what's going to work best is going to depend on the situation, the client, your relationship, and your service. So again, you folks are the experts here. You know what's going to work, and sometimes it's going to be about experimenting, maybe combining different methods, trying one, how did that go? But we do know arguing, persuading, that kind of thing, that's unlikely to be helpful strategies to foster behavior and attitude change, and especially important to keep in mind for sort of more psychosis-type beliefs is you really don't want to get into an arguing and convincing match with someone about a belief like that. It's it's really going to backfire for you. So basically, and- don't ever comment on Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think the thing is, are you going to convince the person who posted it? Probably not. Sometimes people are like, it is worth posting because maybe I'll convince others mm-hmm. who read. You know, sometimes it's personal preference. I don't know of any research that's really looked at. Hey, these comments are are like they people do get convinced, right? Um, so yeah, that's that's a personal choice. I don't think there's convincing evidence about what's more or less effective. But typically, arguing, persuading, not usually effective for actually <laughs> changing behavior. Mm-hmm. And that's that's it. Um, so I'm kind of open to questions, thoughts, and reactions. I just want to say thank you, Heather. That was really, really helpful. Um, we've had an ask for this training in that people have been experiencing difficulty um, helping their clients who are dealing with paranoia or psychosis or even the example of, I think it was Reggie, um, just being aggressive and hard to work with around simple health and hygiene practices in shelters and frontline work. So I really appreciate that you took this topic on. Um, So there's a question here around um, public health measures. Um, Are there public health health measures that could be helpful for addressing this problem that you know of? Um, Or do you want to talk a little bit about how uh, the measures that are currently in place are impacting uh, our mental health or our ability to help people. Yeah, and I guess it would depend on what you mean by sort of this problem, right? Like, so so what is the problem? Is it that uh, clients are not abiding by certain kind of practices like social distancing or hygiene practices? Is it uh, more the conspiracy theory part? Um, is there any indication of that, Sarah, or your impression at least? 
Um, no, I think it's just more a general question around, is there anything we can do on a public health level that would actually help with this issue? Sure. Well, not being a public health expert, <laughs> <laughs> I give full um, caveats to it. It does seem, at least I'll tell you what the literature says that I read, is providing, again, timely factual information, like those daily updates uh, that we get from uh, Dr. Henry, uh, Adrian Dix, those are really important, mm-hmm. right? And kind of the timely updates uh, from authoritative sources, those are important. I know people get frustrated with those, though, because things, science um, and things, it's sometimes guesses of, well, what is it going to be like in a month from now? Well, we've got these models. We think it might be like this, but here's sort of all the limits. People want firm answers, right? And so then when people want firm answers, usually there's that void there. So another theory or someone who does have firm answers, Mm -hmm. um, a so-called expert will often come in to fill that gap, right? Yeah. So I think we have to acknowledge that. Um, but then also talk to people of like, it's better to kind of have our known unknowns than to kind of act as if it's it's something different. We do the best that we can. Yeah. And yet here are our limits. So I think that transparency is really important. And then also kind of acknowledging of, yes, it is very frustrating. Right. And I guess the acknowledging that's on an individual basis, but from public health and population health, they really are suggesting is, you know, capitalizing on social media um, and how people get information using champions within an environment. Uh, and again, that timely, accurate info is going to be really important. Mm-hmm. It's so funny. Three different people have mentioned that they're having major issues with clients maintaining social distance social distancing. So Mm -hmm. in particular, right now, there seems to be an increase in conspiracy and people just want to get close. Uh, They don't Mm -hmm. want to social distance anymore. And so that's been a Mm -hmm. challenge for people. How do you, how do you uh, get that across? I mean, I was even thinking I was at the hardware store loading up my cargo bike and uh, an older staff member, there were signs everywhere. There was like feet on the floor, but she was so concerned about the fact that I was putting uh, lumber on my bike with a bungee cord, which I'd done before, that she like came right up into my space and was trying to help me do that because she'd never seen anything like this before. And I had to literally <laughs> be like, hey. <laughs> Back off, out of the bubble. <laughs> like, But she was an employee and we were literally surrounded by every form of messaging about social distancing possible. So I totally get it, what people are saying. And I wonder if you have any thoughts about that one in particular. I think it really gets to what are people's priorities, right? And what are people's sense of risk and their comfort level with risk, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, So for someone, their priority, like if you're a lumber example, their priority was more, I want to help a human, a fellow human being, right? as opposed to say, protect myself from social distancing, me being helpful to someone who needs it, that is more important, right? Much like I think many of us, if we saw someone being attacked on the street, we might not be like, ooh, well, I don't want to go within two meters, right? We might go and try and help that person. Oh, they fell on the ground? I'm going to go and pick them up, right? Mm -hmm. Or help or ask if they want to be a hand to get up rather than be like, oh, sorry, can't violate my two meters things, right? The other thing is uh, perception of risk, right? Do they think social distancing is important or effective, 
Mm-hmm. Right. I think a lot of people say, if I don't, I don't quite understand it, uh, or I've gotten mixed information. Is it two meters? Is it six meters? Because I'm walking, or no, you're biking, so it's even more. Uh, so they may not consider social distancing or that to be effective or risky. Uh, or sometimes people do know it's risky, but they're like, I'm okay with that. Right. We all have different tolerance of of risk. Right. People eat out uh, at various food carts and food trucks where there's somewhere I'm like, ooh, by the looks of that, you know, the <laughs> risk of food poisoning there is maybe not a risk I'm willing to accept on this one. Yet other people who maybe haven't had norovirus recently might be like, eh, I'll be fine. I'm willing to take that risk, right? <laughs> Which gets a bit of priorities, but it also gets to what someone's uh, tolerance for risk in their life in general. Mm-hmm. So it's this idea of using those tools to say, you know, clients maintaining social distancing. Obviously, there are times when we're dealing with people we've never seen before um, or are totally mm-hmm. new to us. So we don't have the relationship. But definitely, if this isn't a reoccurring thing with a few clients, um, it's sort of maintaining that, hey, I noticed that you're getting really close to me. I'm I'm trying to observe social distancing. But can you tell me what you need right now? You know. What is it that you need yeah. for being close? Yeah. Yeah. And I think it, your intervention choice would depend on are they getting too close to you or you feel they are getting too close to others. Right. Right. So if it was, I think they're getting too close to others. One might be a little bit of, do I need to intervene? Is this my role? Is this going to be helpful here? Like, do I actually think it's going to be effective if I intervene? And if I did, then I'd probably get to close to sort of values, um, kind of what are their thoughts about social distancing? What do mm-hmm. they know about it? Kind of trying to understand their perspective, first of all, before I just kind of launch into why is social distancing important? Because they might have heard the same messages already, right? That's yeah. actually not the issue. Um, if it was with me, though, then I'm kind of setting my own boundary and limit. And then it might be more the like, hey, this is where I'm at. This is where I feel comfortable. This is why I'm doing it. And then it would be a bit more providing information because it's like, it's not that I'm trying to escape you or this, but this is my comfort level. This is what I'm able to tolerate. Yeah, it reminds me actually of um, a technique that I used a lot. Uh, I would be walking around the center and people would come and talk to me, but I would be doing something really important or I'd need to get one place to another. Um, so I would just start walking and they would start walking and talking with me. I actually still use this. Uh, you know, I live in a co-op and there's a bunch of neighbors and we're always crossing paths. And so I just use my actual physical presence to indicate what I'm okay with. So if somebody starts getting too close to me, I just back up. Obviously, mm-hmm. don't back yourself into a corner. Um, there's mm-hmm. been a couple times where I've started walking and someone basically sprints to catch up with me. And I'm like, all right, this person is going to talk to me and I need to be more <laughs> direct. I can't just, you know, move my body away. But it is interesting to think about what are some of the tools that we can use because we are sensitive to one another in terms of our body language as well. Um, yeah. Yeah. And that's also a form of communication, those nonverbals, where sometimes uh, people are more or less sensitive uh, to those, but it doesn't all communication. We tend to over rely on the verbal messages and using verbal to convey things. But I think you made a really good point there. If we can also use use our nonverbals in terms of our body posture, our physical distance, that kind of thing to also communicate. 
Yeah, it also reminds me of just in terms of social distancing, something that I learned in uh, violence de-escalation training. And that is um, we're so afraid to set physical limits with people. But the example is someone's coming towards you. You don't know them and you don't know what their intent is. You can put out your hand in front of you and just say, can I help you? So at the same time that you're being kind and open, you're also creating an actual physical cue for them to stop coming at you. And so if somebody is intending harm in violence prevention, if someone's intending harm, they're going to keep coming. But if there are um, a person who just wants your help or wants to talk to you, they're going to stop at that boundary that you set, right? So it's a really helpful evaluation tool. I've been doing it a lot with social distancing as well. Like even with this uh, elderly employee, I just kind of, I used it. I put my hand out. I said, thank you. I'm okay. I've done this before, but I appreciate your help. And I just kind of physically set some space between us. And I didn't need to tell her I'm social distancing from you or you're in my bubble because I was thanking for her, her for her help. But I was also using my hand to kind of put it out in front of my body. Thankfully, I mean, I'm lucky that I have really long arms, <laughs> but you know, <laughs> you can still do this. And it does send a, a message that's helpful. Yeah, and I, I do think it is tough because I think we are so used to, well, I don't want to insult them. Yeah. I don't want to insult them. And yet that is important. And yet you can set a boundary and it's not like, hey, if I put up my hand, that's going to be the end of the interaction, right? I can then explain, I can still connect with this person, even though I have sort of my hand up even briefly kind of thing. Um, I remember I've had sometimes challenges with colleagues, right, who might be a bit more um, physical than I Mm. was comfortable with, where I remember talking to a colleague afterwards, uh, where it was a one person, they had patted me on the head and <laughs> I, I was kind of frustrated and I was talking to a colleague. I'm like, how could I have changed this situation? Because I didn't really like it. And she's like, well, why didn't you say something at the time? I was like, well, I didn't want to be insulting. I wanted us to kind of have a good relationship. And she's like, well, how is your relationship now? And I'm like, I'm pretty mad at them. And she's like, so the relationship was affected, right? And so why are you always kind of putting, you don't have to put your needs down too. Your needs also matter, right? And so you can respect your boundaries and yet respect the other person as well. You don't have to, you know, put your needs a second in order to be effective with and helpful with a person and have a good relationship with them where that was, I thought, a really good reminder for me. Mm. I also picked up on something uh, that's being picked up here in the comments as well. Um, You had a phrase which was, um, I wish I could do something about this or something like that, but I can't. So what else can we do together? And actually, Mm -hmm. in terms of these public health measures and these directives, um, it is actually a bit of an out psychologically because you can say to someone, I have no, like, as a staff person, I have to do this. Like, Mm -hmm. it's not up to me. But how can we work together to make it work, you know? And that can actually lessen the conflict. Because if you say, hey, man, we're both subject to these greater forces of oppression, and I just need to be able to do my job um, safely, so I'm just following these limits. But I know it's affecting you how can we problem solve together so you get what you need, right? It's a way for them to stop putting you in the position of authority um, over and against them. You align yourself together. 
yeah, you're kind of on the same team all of a sudden. I've used that so many times over the years. Um, I used to work in an environment where we had security and there were rules around how people could be in the space. So they couldn't be actively uh, on a substance and they couldn't be aggressive. And there were some, you know, rules to keep everyone safe. And oftentimes it would be someone that I knew really well and was a client of mine and they would come in completely wasted and starting to cause an issue. And so instead of me going over to them and saying, you're breaking the rules, get out. Or, you know, I mean, obviously I wouldn't mm-hmm. say it like that, but you know, mm-hmm. that directive, I would often be like, Hey man, I noticed that you're a bit high right now. Um, why don't you, why don't you head out for a bit before security notices, right? Like I would kind of, I mean, you don't want to be sneaky about it, but I'd be like, Hey, I noticed you're not doing well. Remember the rules here, but I'm going to give you an opportunity to make your own choice about leaving before security or whoever gets involved. Right. Um, yeah. Which was very effective. Yeah. And I, I agree with you of kind of like, well, this is the policy. This is a policy policy of public health. Or this is the direction we've been given, mm-hmm. you know, that kind of thing. You have to be careful. It's yeah. kind of like, say, with the security thing is you don't want to split your team. I'm no. like, oh, it's management that's the problem or right. it is the ministry. So you have to sometimes use some judgment there. But I think what you're really talking about, Sarah, is where is our shared goals? How we're similar of like, this is a situation. It sucks. Right? Yes. <laughs> this situation sucks. And we both agree it sucks. I wish I didn't, you know, have to give you these two choices, which both suck. Mm-hmm. And yet here we are. So, you know, what would you like to do for this, right? And kind of giving them as much choice and control there, uh, which is helpful, even in a really crappy situation that that still helps and kind of, yeah, we're still, we're two human beings. We have different roles here, but I'm a human. I, I recognize this sucks, right? Yeah. You're so good at saying that. (laughs) (laughs) It's so important. Um, we just got a bit more time here for more questions if they're coming in. Uh, actually, what you were saying about splitting the team, it reminds me of something you brought up earlier, which I think is really crucial. We talk about it in a lot of our webinars, and that is having a united, uh, consistent messaging among your staff. And mm-hmm. the only way to do that really effectively, especially in frontline work when there's shift changes and constant emergency, is to build in verbal and consistent check-ins where at shift change, you grab everybody and say, hey, this is what we did today. This is what we're working on. This is what's important right now. Can we all agree on this, you know, or whatever it is, like, especially as man- as a manager and supervisor, um, it didn't matter if I sent 100 million emails. Um, what mattered in terms of consistency and teamwork for my staff was actually having those scheduled check-ins where I got as many people as possible to come to the table, even for five minutes before, you know, the door opened and a huge crush of people came in to say, okay, what's our goal for today? Uh, What are the new rules in place around COVID? What are we working on? So that you can then present that consistent information and limits to clients. Um, Yeah. And you just, Everyone thinks they can. I can do this via email or we can do it via sort of a memo or note posted. And it just it can't. You need the face to face connection kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's so important. I think the other thing that you reminded me of, which is also one of my favorite quotes that I constantly remind myself of is um, clients don't split the team. 
the team splits the team, hmm. right? So often people say, oh, well, that person, they're so manipulative. They, you know, they idealize this person, you know, Sherry's the good person. John's, you know, the bad guy all the time. No, this is a team splits a team, right? When we are inconsistent and, you know, one person kind of doesn't have a boundary or kind of makes an exception, again, with the best of intentions, right? Or maybe because they really disagree with a policy or procedure. Mm -hmm. People do it because they care. And yet it makes things unpredictable and actually more stressful for a client, right? Because you don't know what to expect. Sometimes I get it. Sometimes I don't. So this client or this staff member says yes, but another staff member doesn't. Is it because I yelled that last time? That's why I got it. Maybe I need to yell for everything, right? Mm -hmm. And so actually by having inconsistent boundaries, making exceptions, that can cause actually more distress and more challenges for clients than we realize, even though we do these things with the best of intentions. Yeah. What an excellent reminder and and point to make, Heather. Well, um, thank you for being here, everyone. Uh, Lots to think about. You can find all of that information at our website. You can get in touch with us anytime. We love hearing from you. Um, There's all of our resources and everything in the coronavirus section, all of our training. We're going to be working on getting the audio and the video of the sessions today uploaded and edited for you in the next couple of days and all of the handouts and everything will be there. So Heather, thank you as always. You're just so helpful and practical and uh, we really appreciate you. Thanks for taking the time to be with us today. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. And uh, to everybody on the line, you keep showing up, you keep doing the work even when it's hard. Um, So thank you. Uh, and come back and see us, <laughs> come back and see us sometime, but do come back and join us. Uh, make sure you fill out that survey. Uh, let us know how we can continue to offer training that you need and want and stay safe, stay calm and try to get a break in there somewhere today. Take care, everyone. HSABC is a provincial, member-driven organization, and our mandate is to strengthen and unify services across BC that are addressing the needs of those experiencing homelessness. Right now, so many of our members, as well as their friends, families, colleagues, and clients, are facing unprecedented challenges, as well as a total change to our daily lives. And we're here to help support you on the front lines, however we can. You keep showing up, even in the most intense and difficult of circumstances, for the most vulnerable. Thank you for all the work you do, and for continuing to do it every day. Our website is hsa-bc.ca, and you can find COVID-19-specific resources for frontline and shelter workers, including handouts, posters, webinar video, news and health authority updates, and much more. You can also email us at info at hsa-bc.ca or find us on Twitter at underscore hsabc. Stay calm, stay safe, stay strong.